0: Thank you and enjoy today's message.
1: Hey, blessings to you all this uh, Sunday morning. I'm recording today from uh, the downstairs office in our house as the rain beating on the roof lights upstairs is so loud it sounds like somebody's throwing pebbles, sounds like a miniature stoning. Anyhow, um, I always try to bring you a new way to look at things. Um... Sometimes I draw criticism online from various people who uh, feel that they need to correct my perspective because, uh, in their view, it does not follow the rules of biblical literalism. Uh, And uh, I think, to be honest, biblical biblical literalism has been one of the worst curses of the, uh, let's call it, the evangelical message Uh, And uh, through it and in it, it has created a scenario where uh, understanding the divine and the presence of of the divine, that we would use the term God, becomes extremely restricted because uh, we are then only allowed by those criteria. to define God within the context of some words within a book which in their own right have passed through many minds and many mouths and uh, many translators and uh, many centuries and um, that literalism then I feel and believe uh, does two things. First of all it shrinks something that should be much bigger, expansive and um, and uh encompassing and uh it also it also narrows our ability to to uh unwrap and unfold and explain uh the full nuances of these ancient writings which contain in my view incredible wisdom and insight and uh, so anyway um uh if, if I were to say to you, because I want to talk a little bit about on the Christmas context today, if I were to say to you, uh, finish the line of the Christmas carol for me, we three. Uh, of course, you probably bear in mind and bring bring to your mind the, um, the Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are. Um, and uh, the truth is that that is not a true expression of what that carol should say. If you're going to be accurate, truly accurate, you would have to make the carol We Three Persian Zoroastrian Astrologers of Orient Are. Uh, but of course, that does not help the rhyming of the song. Uh, as um, as the old comedy duo um, Smith and Jones, uh, Mel Smith and Griff jones used to say in the time when... Um, when when Nelson Mandela had been released from prison. The problem with Nelson Mandela being set free from prison, it reduced a swear word, good song, uh, because that was the time when the song was going around, free Nelson Mandela. Well, of course, if he was free, the song became pretty pointless. But anyway, in that context, what I'm saying is that uh, if you were to put in we three Persian Zoroastrian astrologers, you would ruin the song. Some of you might think that song needs ruin. Ruining. Uh, the truth about the matter is that that these visitors, uh, real or imagined, however you wish to perceive it, were certainly not kings. Um, they are defined as wise men in some translations. Well, maybe um, you know if you take some of your theology from Monty Python's The Life of Brian, uh, then you will remember the the wise men there turning up at the wrong place rather than uh, the house of Jesus they turn up at the house of Brian which is that whole movie is about the confusion and I think it's hilarious Uh, not sure about the crucifixion scene but I think the concept of it is hilarious of how easy it is for us to be drawn to something that looks like kind of what we were after but we get we get down the wrong track so so we we become followers of Brian instead of followers of Jesus and I think some people's some people's uh understanding of the gospel is more akin to life of Brian than it is the life of Jesus but there you go it's another story anyhow um uh in the story the wise men turn up and and frighten Brian's mother half to death uh, and they declared themselves we are the wise men well her, her response is you well, you're not very wise are you sneaking up on an old lady like that um so uh wise men uh, see um may, maybe maybe, but using these words is you know wise men um kings um is, is both unhelpful and misleading in respect to a proper understanding of what is being conveyed by their inclusion. What makes it worse is the thought that this may have been done deliberately. Now, again, there's something for you to wrestle with and that will probably draw an email or two uh, in, in regards to that one comment. But... Um, Uh, I don't know, you see, I I think so often these things are translated in a way that misleads us from the fullness of of what we need to learn. Now, now I would also say that I think one has to be really callously hard, it's my opinion, to not love the idea of the Christmas story. I mean, it's just a gorgeous story. I think it has enduring uh, resonance, um, if for nothing else, because it's just a beautiful story that that um, we have connected to in a way that is obviously, along with the emergence of, of what we would know as the Christian faith, has become a staple of uh, Western society. Um, but I think there's a subtle cleverness within the biblical text that, that using cultural awareness of the time written about conveys a hopeful, inclusive, big-hearted message in a call to believe. See, that's why I think it, it has this attraction. When you look at the characters on stage during the epic event that we call the nativity. It's very interesting because each one of these, in its own right, has a message attached to it. You have a a Roman imperial governor setting the scene for the birth of an anti-empirical message, which is, where's the paradox in that? Uh, You know, the whole census thing. (laughs) <laughs> real or unreal, you know, some people would say, well, historically, we have no record of a census taking place at that time. That's not the point. The point is that, that the inclusion of this in the story, I think, probably was real, um, you know, and, and there are other arguments to say it was historically real. But the inclusion is because it's trying to say something in the context of, of, of this Roman empirical governor setting a scene for the birth of an anti-empirical message. And then, of course, we've got the angelic messengers appearing to the shepherds. Now, depending on what documents you read about the shepherds, there's definitely an implication that um, the message of this thing, the the initial uh, expression of the reality of this thing is brought to a group of people who one would say were not the most qualified to receive that message if this is a heaven-based message, if this is a God message, they were not the ones you would choose to bring that message to. But here, they are the first to receive this message. And then you've got an unknown, immature virgin girl getting chosen to be the recipient of this uh, thing, and I don't mean that as a derogatory term of non-recognition of the importance of what was about to happen, but she becomes the 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 recipient of this thing, this this incarnation, this this becoming, uh, and she's just an unknown immature virgin girl. And then you've got a guy who's a carpenter who barely gets mentioned again. Uh, Joseph, who according to the message version of the Bible, I love this phrase, I've preached on this many times, was chagrined but noble. Now that's an old English word, chagrined. Uh, What it really means in our vernacular today is that this guy who was wrestling with the reality, truth, acceptance, um, application, involvement, impartation of this thing, was pretty ticked. which you would be, wouldn't you? Um, he was pretty ticked, but he was noble in that, in spite of all the challenges, he rose to the challenge to accommodate the 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 coming of this thing, to accommodate the impending presence of this that we would know in in, in Christian understanding of of God incarnate, the incarnation. Um, and then you've got an unscrupulous ruler, Herod, who would rather kill babies than wrestle with the change demanded by a new revelation of truth. <laughs> Each one of these carries within it, uh, from its cultural essence, uh, a blatant message uh, just from this one story. Um, and then, of course, you move on to what I want to talk a little bit about today. And Persian Zoroastrian astrologers. Now, if, if you don't know what Zoroastrian was, Zoroastrianism uh, was a, the religion, the dominant religion in Persia. And of course, the, the Israelites were in captivity in Persia for a long time. And um, if you take the time to, to um, investigate, study, research Zoroastrianism, uh, you will find... I hope this doesn't upset some, but you will find that what was drawn into the Israelite culture, that it then, of course, has moved through uh, many of those things to to our, our Christian understanding, were elements that were not based in Hebrew belief or understanding of God, but were were cross-cultural um, absorption of ideas from Zoroastrianism. So even some issues like uh, um, uh, heaven and hell and the devil and those kind of ideas. If you look, you will find a lot of the root for what we think we understand of that actually came from uh, Persian Zoroastrianism. Anyway, that's, that's not my subject today, but you can, you can go and uh, Google it and have a good look into that. Uh, that so so the, these character of these Persian or Austrian astrologers, who were prepared to undertake a two year expedis- expedition on the strength of a horoscope. Now, a uh, couple of things to point out here: they were not Persian astronomers studying the the cosmos from a scientific perspective. Although I have no doubt that uh, because of the the, the cross the cross connection of disciplines back uh, in that era that they are called wise men not just because of um, uh, any outward wisdom but because they were also likely to have had some scientific understanding, some scientific grasp. But there was not a distinction back then between what we would know as astronomy and what we would know as astrology. You know, one studying... the the course of the heavens and the content of the heavens. The other one, the study of how the alignment of stars and how the movement in the heavens affects life in earth. Now, if you take that in the broader sense, um, you know, who would deny that, who has any kind of faith-based understanding or Christian understanding that uh, what's happening in the heavens affects what's happening in the earth. Now, they understood that in the sense of their astrology. They believed that the movement of the stars and the things that they saw were were um, prophetic, were symbolic, were influential in the process of life. So so these, they're Persian, they're Zoroastrian in the context of their belief. They're, they're astrologers, not, not, not specifically astronomers. And um, on the strength of a horoscope reading, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's not just about astronomy. That's like this star means something. On the strength of a horoscope, these Persian Zoroastrian astrologers undertook a two-year expedition. Now, the whole idea of um, you know the wise men turning up at the stable, the manger, uh, is pretty much a nonsense. Because if you read the story, they didn't come to a manger when they finally arrived in the story. They they arrive at the house and, and they've been to see Herod and that they've probably done a journey that took them via Bethlehem uh, because it clearly says that when they came to the house and it talks about the child, not the baby. And, of course, uh, Herod's response to their uh, horoscopical declaration of seeing the star and when they first saw it and... Uh, uh, that present day meant that Herod instructed that all babies uh, under two years of age and up to two years of age should be killed. Uh, monstrous. But that would also indicate to you that uh, they first saw the star two years earlier. And I don't think that was two years before the birth of Jesus. I think this was leading them to the, the home of the child. So then you move on to in the story, why a manger? Why is this the setting? Why, why an obscure village in the countryside, Bethlehem? Why, why a census at that time? And and what about the star? All of these things uh, become elements on the stage of this uh, wonderful story. So, considering all that uh, and and all that's weaved into the story how do we unlock its twists and turns and secrets to bring us a life-defining moment that will keep unfolding for us for as long as we can imagine? Because I personally do not believe that what happened back then was meant to be uh, just an event, a historical event and a marker point. I think it is the introduction to a process that will keep unfolding for as long as you can imagine. Uh, See, the major point of the story is not nativity, but incarnation. Now, we've got taken up too much with the nativity aspect, okay? The nativity is simply the Christmas story, okay? Rather than the incarnational aspect. When, When you move from nativity to incarnation, it ceases to be a ceremony, or a celebration within the context of the calendar. And it becomes, uh, it becomes a revelation of, of an impartation to determine a lifestyle, a lifestyle of incarnation. God in us, God with us, God as us. And I believe that's the root and context from which all biblical scripture should be um, expounded. And uh, by which we should begin our little journey um, with broadened minds to understand God, to understand the divine. Um, uh, so it's not about nativity; it's about incarnation. Okay? Incarnation: God in us, God with us, God as us. Now, within within the bigger story, excuse me a minute. Within the bigger story, um, I want to focus on this one element. Uh, that, is, that I think is of shatteringly vital importance if you want to grasp the revolutionary nature of the Jesus message. Uh, let me just read this bit of story from Matthew chapter 2. Um, you, you'll be familiar with this. Uh, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. There's the other word that's used. And asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. He sent them to Bethlehem and said go and make a careful search for the child and as soon as you find him report to me so that I may go and worship him. Liar. Drama. After they'd heard the king they went on their way and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was and when they saw the star they were overjoyed. On coming to the house they saw the child and his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him and They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankenstein and myrrh. um, Which is how I understood it as a kid. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Because he basically was going to kill all the kids under two. Uh, That's the story. So we're also introduced to this term Magi. Why Magi? It's a legitimate term from the era, if you you look it up, uh, particularly about these Zoroastrian wise men astrologers. Um, uh, And um, it's the word from which we get our word magic. Magi, magic. That's the origination. These were magic men. These were magicians, considered to be magicians. So not only are they considered, not only are they declared really as astrologers because of how they see the star. and These Zoroastrians are also looked upon as magicians. All kinds of stuff that in, in institutionalised traditional Christianity would be disqualifying factors, each one in their own right, for the purists particularly, uh, of allowing these men to be so significant in the story of, of the purity... of 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 jesus born in a manger the christ the word becoming flesh you know what what was why were these people in this story why not choose some you know amazingly self-righteous holy whatever you know but but these guys are in now this this is what fascinates me you see that they should play such a major role in the the declaration and recognition and gifting towards the incarnation that the empowerment for much of what was to come was to come from the gifts that they brought gold frankincense and myrrh each one of them extremely valuable Uh, one could argue that these Persian Zoroastrian astrologers who would have been rejected by the mainstream church uh, for all of that, and their association with magic, strange arts, uh, were the ones who financed the ministry uh, and all that was to come. Anyhow, um, so for me, it would appear that a bunch of Persian astrologers were more tuned in to what was happening at the time of God being made flesh than the whole religious community who were the ones seeking it out seeking him out seeking this out it wasn't the bible bashers the theologians the the law preachers the the mega church pastors the whatever (laughs) it was these persian zoroastrian astrologers looking for this incarnation of god in the revelation of the christ Uh, not the religious community. And and they were the ones prepared to make the journey to find truth. If these guys in that story, these, you know, these so informed leaders of the belief community, faith community, uh, were so inspirational, why is it that when they only had to go, in essence, if what they were reading was true, occasionally in the story from Jerusalem to Bethlehem but they weren't going to do that now they were in their high tower they were sat in their little rooms studying their scriptures you know uh, thinking that by knowing them they were something when all the way from Persia comes these Zoroastrian astrologers uh, who are magic men who were the ones prepared to make the journey to find truth you see We can be so restrictive in the search for truth that we think it's a certain kind of person who we have defined and delineated by a narrow, restrictive understanding of God, the divine spirituality, scripture, and those who we think would be excluded from being primary receptors and, and, and understanders going all the way from shepherds through the virgin girl, through Joseph, through these magi. They were the ones who actually had got a handle on where it was happening. I'm not a big fan of what Christianity has become because I think it's institutionalisation, which being confirmed by certain things like, you know, if it's big, it must be right kind of thing you know is a little troublesome and i think this whole story this nativity story which is actually about incarnation is actually a propaganda message um against that way of trying to box god up in our uh, small-minded but but uh, small-minded but big ambitious projects and uh, and missing then where the truth is found who the truth is found by and how the truth is found and one could argue why the truth is found so suddenly with all with just this one detail of these uh, these magi we've opened up a whole world of wonder and respect to who has the handle on what's going on it seems to me that religious people have an aversion to their truth being questioned or challenged. You don't need to spend five minutes, more than five minutes, uh, looking at controversy within those who have a a wider understanding of of the Christian faith, the understanding of the gospel of Jesus, of God, of, of history to find that religious people just have an aversion to their truth being questioned or challenged. And we should actually be, or we or they, should actually be the ones who have the openness because we understand the process of incarnation. Into where we are comes something new, something fresh. That is a revelation of the divine for us. That is the formation and formulator of our journey from that point on, but we seem to have an aversion to our truth being questioned or challenged. See, there also seems to be in this a lot of journeys embedded in the story, which again speaks to me very strongly. There's the journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, there's the journey of Joseph from doubt. To belief, there's the journey of Mary from conception to birth, there's the journey of the shepherds from mountain to manger, there's the journey of the Magi from Persia to the house, and there's the journey of Mary and Joseph to Egypt and back um, after the baby is born. Listen, don't don't be afraid of or resistant to the journey that brings you to truth. Because it could be as varied um, and as diverse as, as the, 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 the ones in this story. Don't be afraid or resistant of it, but we become so afraid because obviously any journey requires that you leave where you are to go somewhere that you are not. Uh, and you often have to leave in faith that where you are going will hold in within its boundaries... What it was that you left to find. Now, not that that should be the end of the journey, because in essence, I believe you know, even the words of Jesus, what he kept saying to people was, "Follow me." He didn't say, "Follow me to there." He said, "Follow me, and I'll make you." Something about the issue of 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 of, of even the message of Jesus that's not always, I think, being conveyed uh, correctly is that he brings us not to a destinational theology, i.e. come from here to there, earth to heaven, whatever, but a directional theology. Just go the way that I'm going. And that, for me, is the essence of true spirituality anyway. So don't be afraid or resistant to the journey that brings you to truth. Every one of us should share the hope that the virgin birth is a reality. Now, whether whether we believe or whether you believe, it is a uh, the story has been has been uh, moulded. Whether some of you believe that the words used don't mean virgin, I've heard all the different theological concepts about (coughs) about this. Excuse me, I'm 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 not particularly uncomfortable. In fact, I would say I'm very comfortable with the idea of. Um, the virgin birth. It it doesn't bother me. I can see the reality of it. I believe the truth of it. I believe the mystery of it. And I think, why not? Uh, You know, uh, the world and the universe and science is a very exciting place with many mysteries and wonders. So why not? I believe it personally. But the reason I say every one of us should share the hope that the virgin birth is reality is for this reason, because if it is, then it's possible that by very non-human means, something very humanly impacting can happen to the least of us. And I think this is the essence of the story of the incarnation. You know, I think within there, the great response of Mary in the story to the invitation to become, uh, to become the mother of, of, of Jesus Uh, I think the great response of Mary to that invitation within the story as it's written is to become a participant, not a spectator. So the great response of Mary to the invitation to become a participant over a spectator is found in the words that she responded to the angelic visitation that she says, well, let it be to me, as you have said. Does be it unto me as you have said, still work. Is there something powerful about that 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 um, releases something mystically, um, supernaturally, spiritually, powerfully? Uh, having that attitude, not just speaking those words, but, but having that heart attitude that says... Let it be to me, as you have said. Does it still work? Well, try it and see. Try it and see. If there's a divine presence, if there is a, an incarnation for us, uh, then try it and see. See, I, I, think, I think there's something about surrender to mystery and unknowing that carries a potential for unimagined possibility. And I want to draw you today to the place of surrender to mystery and unknowing. Realising that this story encompasses so many ways and so many people that are all being drawn to and brought to this power of incarnation. Right, Word made flesh, God in us, with us, as us. Uh, Something coming on the inside of us that was not there before this encounter And that when it has its birth from us becomes an expression, the expression of God in the earth, God in us, God through us, God with us, all all of that. And that's what I want you to experience today by understanding this is not actually this story uh, particularly and per se and only about nativity, but it's about incarnation. And that is the journey that our inner being always calls for, is that power and presence of incarnation. There's something about surrender to mystery and unknowing. And some of you have been in church for years, listen to me. There's something about the surrender to mystery and unknowing. That's why we've got these characters thrown in there. There's something about surrender to mystery and unknowing that carries a potential for unimagined, possibility. May you be blessed this Christmas time with the manifestation of unimagined possibility because of the incarnation in the Christ. I love you. I bless you. Look forward to seeing some of you uh, this coming Saturday as we meet for a short time at four o'clock in Priory Street. Try and be there. Love to see you. God bless you. Love you. Have a wonderful day.